The saying goes, when you need to lose yourself, you will find yourself in a garden. A beautiful garden can inspire us, restore us, and calm us. This is Blooming Lovely with Melanie Walker. Yes, and it's a blooming lovely day. If only it would rain. I'm sure that most of us who are sitting up here in Johannesburg and the surrounding areas are just sitting and coming. Come on, clouds, stop with this nonsense now. We need some actual rain, not just thunder and lightning, which is very, very frightening. Sorry, I'm just like stealing from songs here. But heavy clouds, no rain. We need to actually get that going. But anyway, welcome to it. The next hour, of course, talking about all kinds of things to do with anything green, which is one of my favorite colors. My other favorite color is lilac. And although jacarandas aren't exactly lilac, they're on that same spectrum. And they are looking glorious. Um, it's very difficult to snap pictures of them when you're driving. So I, I often am found pulling off the road and grabbing my camera and taking pictures of jacaranda trees. But unfortunately, so many of them that line our streets are looking a bit kind of not like they should do because they get cut by city power so the lines can go through them. And, you know, people are always cutting off the sides and the branches die. But they still look amazing, but always best when they're in their full canopy. Anyway, they're blooming interesting, they reckon. Five things you didn't know about jacaranda trees. Maybe you don't know. I probably do. Um, but, you know, first of all, they're not all jacaranda colored some of them are white okay um there are a few around i know that in um hubert uh, sorry herbert baker street in grunkloff um has lots of them uh, you can't grow them from seed in fact you can't grow any jacarandas in south africa from seed um, but the white ones apparently are sterile and of course they are not south african plants which is probably why they're on the invasives list um, they actually came from south america they were imported from argentina in the 1880s and according to johannesburg city parks the nursery owner william nelson was credited with lining the streets of johannesburg with these trees now one thing that's interesting is of course they went onto the invasives list Okay, but interestingly enough, they have now been declared non-invasive in an urban area. Um, like in Johannesburg, that means that we don't have to go and pull them all down. Um, but you're not allowed to grow any more of them. And uh, you can rest a while that it's going to be a little while before the trees uh, die, but they do have a lifespan. So if you live in a street with jacarandas, okay, I would suggest seeing as they've been around for about a 100 and 30 years, I would reckon around about now, that you might want to pl plant something else to take its place in its stead when it actually does shuffle off this mortal coil. Um, so it is illegal to plant new jacaranda trees. And talking about them removing them, of course, um, jacarandas were the star of one of the best April Fool's jokes to be had here in Southern Africa. It was uh, my dear friend uh, <laughs> Derek from Carte Blanche in 2001. He reported the government planned to remove all the jacaranda trees because they were water-guzzling aliens. And, of course, the public went completely crazy. Uh, but it was a very well-timed and uh, great April Fool's Day joke, prank on the rest of the people. So those are wonderful things, but be careful when you're taking pictures of them, like I was doing, pull off the road. In Australia, they've actually turned around and said, you know, they've, they've now banned people from stopping because they get into the middle of the road and lie down to take pictures. Don't care about the cars coming towards them, but those are Australians. We've got a lot more sense here in South Africa. So that is, that is my, my pick of the week 
when it comes to um, plants. But if you're not going to have a jacaranda in your, your garden and you are thinking about putting something in, the plants that are in season at the moment are your azalea, which are absolutely beautiful flowering plants, and dixonia, which is a big fern. Okay, so your tree fern needs to be in a partially shaded spot uh, where it doesn't have too much wind, needs organic matter when you're planting it, Stake them for up to two years because they can get a bit wobbly. Water copiously when you first planted it and then regularly thereafter and protect the top of the trunk during periods of adverse weather, meaning when it's really cold, okay, because they don't like getting too cold. Then your azaleas, um, of course, they like partial shade. So these are the shady ladies, which I think we could all be doing with when it's so hot outside. Um, make sure that uh, they don't get too hot, okay, so not full sun. And give them acidic soil. Okay, you can get acidic uh, compost and make sure that there's lots of drainage and you should be having color in your shade in no time at all. Right, there's, that's it for the plants of the week. I, I like plants a lot, so there's so many of them that we're going to have to have at least three every single week to be able to fit them all in. But somebody else who's going to be talking to us about plants and about how to get the best out of your garden in a moment, we'll be joining Debbie Smith. But right now, I think it's time for a little bit of a, a celebration about this wonderful weather. This is Blooming Lovely with Melanie Walker. And ain't it just a lovely Sunday? As I was saying, I just hope it rains, and I'm sure that somebody else who's helping it, hoping it rains as well, is one of my very dear friends. Now, if you've watched the Home Channel over the years, you might have noticed, I mean, we had her as a guest last week, uh, Linda Galvad, doing How to Do Veggie Stuff, and then on Gardening 101, the rest of the time was about beautiful gardens and about how you can get the right plants for the right place and what to do with it. One of the people we've had on that particular show quite often because she creates some of the most beautiful gardens I've ever seen is Debbie Smith of Foxgloves Landscape Design. And we're going to be chatting to her right now to find out what she reckons goes into making a beautiful garden. Morning, Debbie. Hi, Mel. How are you? Very well, thanks. And you? I'm okay, thanks. Excellent. So, Debbie, um, this time of the year, are you extremely busy? This is, um, I think, crazy season in the landscaping industry. We never know how hard to jump or when we can come down. We just can't run fast enough. And it's a blessing. We literally make our hay while the sun is shining. And <laughs> making hay, as long as you're just making that and, and making money out of it as well. But, um, I mean, how how many people these days are actually kind of more into creating a garden that they can live in after the pandemic that we went through? Or was there like a surge of it and then everybody decided, oh, actually, now because we lost a lot of work, we can't afford to do it anymore? What what has been the the kind of the graph, if you want to call it that, of landscape design over the last three years? It's been a bit of a, a mixed bag, I think. Definitely straight after COVID, when when lockdown was finished, I think that it was a boon for our industry in many ways in terms of nurseries and landscapers because people, I think, had had a long time to sit and look at their own space and realize that that it wasn't what it should be. I think prior to COVID, most people would be leaving for work early in the morning and coming home at late at night, not really always taking in how bad the state was at home. And I think COVID also um, created these opportunities for people to start working more from home and enjoying their home environment. Also, they were traveling less, so there was more disposable income that could be put into into the domestic scene and definitely gardens benefited from that. Of course, the other thing that 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 exploded was this idea of of 
vegetable gardening and fruit gardening. I think people, COVID scared a lot of people into wanting to have some kind of food security, especially at the beginning when we, when we thought that we might not be able to get into the shops to buy food. So, um, the season immediately after COVID was absolutely fantastic. It kind of dipped again at the beginning of this year. Um, and I think that might have been because, um, financially, the world is, is, is strained at the moment. Having said that, this spring has actually been a wonderful season again. And I think that people are, are looking up and looking forwards to being able to garden and enjoy their spaces, enjoy the outdoor, um, lifestyle again. And I think, you know, it's always quite an exciting, um, sense of regeneration in spring. I think spring brings hope. And that's what we kind of experience at this time of year. Well, I think we're looking up. We're looking more to see if the rain is coming. I mean, this is, it must be very frustrating for you, especially as we're now in level two water restrictions across Gauteng. Um, I mean, how do you go and plant out a new garden if you can't water your plants in properly? Well, it's very stressful. I must say it's a, it's a big stress um, for us as landscapers at the moment. And one of the things that I push a lot with my clients is to try and remember to compost their gardens, mulch their gardens, because we need to be able to retain any kind of moisture um, that is in the soil and, and make the most of it. So it is quite a difficult time of year um, to be gardening. And, yeah, we are praying for rain at the moment. I think aside from the fact that we want the rain for the garden, just it's been so unbearably hot for everybody. I think that we that we all we all need it so desperately. And also just to settle the, settle the dust and the pollens and everything that's floating around in the air. Okay, so we're going to build a garden with Debbie right now. Debbie, does it matter what space you have, or can you have a garden in any space? No, I think that um, a balcony can be a garden, a pot can be a garden. And um, and that's something to remember. I think a lot of people think that because they live in a, a townhouse or a flat with only a balcony, they can't garden. But you can you can garden in a single container. I don't think that it matters where you garden. It matters that you do garden. And gardens can be very, very big or they can be very, very small. Okay. So, I mean, I know that you're, you're a lecturer also at uh, Lifestyle College. So you, you, you get to teach people all of these things. And I always wonder, I mean, having done a lot of your courses as well, I'm always wondering what is the most valuable piece of information you would ever give somebody when they're starting out? First of all, the first thing you'll tell them when they're cre- creating a garden. I think the most important part of any garden is the soil and it's probably the most neglected part of most gardens because we tend to want to spend money on buying beautiful plants but what we what we forget about is that plants rely very heavily on their roots we don't think about the roots because we don't see them they're below the ground and we're just thinking about the beautiful let's say rose because roses are in at the moment but if we're not making the roses roots very happy um, um if the rose doesn't have a strong healthy root system, it's not able to draw in the water and nutrients that it needs to actually grow and thrive. So I think that the foundation of any garden, whether it's a big one, a small one, a container one, whatever kind of garden you're growing, the foundation has to be the soil. If you've got a good, strong foundation, you can only get better from there. But, I mean, how do you get your soil right? Because there's so many different soils, not just in, like, you know, where you live, but, I mean, like, all over Gauteng, you can get from very clay soil to really sandy soil. And then, of course, let's not let's not consider what they do, go through in the Cape, where they have probably the worst soil in the world. Well, it's not that bad. I mean, the fainwas grows in it, but that's about it. What is what, what is the first thing that anybody should do 
while they're thinking, I don't know what kind of soil I have, because a lot of people are new to this whole gardening thing. Well, I think, first of all, you can do the, the easiest way to find out what kind of soil you've got, the cheapest, easiest way, is to do what we call the sausage test. And you basically get a handful of soil, moisten it slightly, and then roll it in the palm of your hand so that it forms a kind of sausage. Um, and then once you open your hand, have a look at what that soil does. If it's a very sandy soil, the sausage won't stay together. It will break apart. If it's a very clay soil, it will mold to the shape of your palm and stay in in the sausage form, and then you know you're dealing with with a clay soil. So I think that's the first thing, try and establish whether you've got a sandy soil or a clay soil. And then understand that as gardeners, what we're looking for ideally is a loam soil. And why a loam soil is so good is because it's got a high amount of organic matter in it. It will drain sufficiently, but it will also hold water sufficiently. And the best way to set about altering any soil, whether it's a a sandy soil or a clay soil, is to add compost. Compost is the the universal fix-all for a soil. And gardens can never, ever get enough compost. Compost does this amazing thing. In a sandy soil, when you work compost in, it will kind of bind the particles of the sandy soil together. Um, Compost in itself is very fairly spongy, so it will hold onto water and stop water from running through the sandy soil. So quickly, sandy soils have a tendency to dry out very quickly because they drain so quickly. And because they drain quickly and the water runs through them quickly, they are also very, very nutrient deficient. So compost helps to bind those sandy soils, helps to hold, make them a little bit more um, sponge-like so that they hold onto water and then at the same time will add nutrients because compost is very, very nutrient-rich um, in the garden. So the flip side of that is when we look at a clay soil, a clay soil um, stays waterlogged. It doesn't drain very, very well, which is detrimental to plants because often they literally drown. There's not enough um, aeration and there's not enough enough water drainage through the soil. So so they become um, plants end up literally drowning where they're standing. Clay soils are very, very rich in nutrients. Um, and what compost will do in a clay soil is it will work its way in between the clay particles, separate them slightly and allow water to actually start draining and also allow better air circulation and air penetration into the soil. So the basis of any garden, the beginning of any any garden, is the compost and the composting of the soil and making sure that the soil has enough humic or compost content in it. Um, when I was still a student horticulturist, I had a boss that used to say to us, you don't want to put a 50 rand plant in a five cent hole. And I think that's, that's still valid today. We spend a lot of money on the actual plant and in order to kind of ensure and guarantee that that plant is going to do really, really well, we need to fix the soil first. And the first way we do that is with compost. But what happens if you've got like really, really kind of very clay soil? I mean, I'm just imagining this whole thing. You're stuck there with the soil. It's going to take a lot of compost and a lot of hard work to be able to get that compost in there to a depth where you have enough drainage because you can't just do it for like about 10, 15 centimeters. That's not going to be deep enough for the roots. Um, No, you need... 
sorry, carry on. Yeah, so would you, would you suggest then in that kind of case, if you've got really compact or very, very sandy soil where it's just like eating up the compost off one after the other, to maybe use raised beds, would that be a better idea? Well, yes, I think sometimes when a compost, when a soil is very, 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 very clay, raised beds might be a solution. Raised beds work beautifully because you can kind of control what medium you're going to be putting into them. So particularly when you're doing a vegetable garden, veggies hate sitting with their roots in soil. And if you've got a very, very heavy clay soil, then it's ideal to actually create a little bit of a raised bed. And normally you can fill that then with um, some kind of topsoil mix and add compost into it or even put potting soil into a raised bed. And potting soil is um, will drain very, very nicely. In fact, in my own garden, I've got a raised veggie garden because we have a fair amount of clay. And although I've gardened the, the garden for 20 years and added compost, definitely we've reached a stage now where we've got a lot more low. But I find especially my root crops, things like my, my carrots and my onions, are still not happy to grow in the clay. So we've created raised beds for our vegetable garden, and they work very, very efficiently. The other thing that's wonderful about a raised bed is that they stay warmer for, for longer so that you get a slightly longer growing season when you have raised beds. That sounds like a great idea. Now, for I've been to Debbie's garden a couple of times. It is one of the most lush and beautiful gardens I have been to. I mean, it's it's full of plants, and it's full of activity. It's full of life. And Debbie doesn't use anything chemical in her garden at all. Now, Debbie, how do you go about accomplishing, first of all, a really kind of tropical-style garden in Johannesburg? And how do you keep it going at this time of the year, like, for instance, now when we don't have that much water? Well, look, it's taking a bit of strain at the moment because we've had a long period of hot water. But having said that, it's still not looking that bad. And I think the key to creating a lush full garden is to understand the environment that you're gardening in. A lot of people um, want to buy plants. I want my garden to look like a tropical Durban garden. And we need to understand that up here on the high south, you can't get a tropical Durban garden because we don't have the rain that they get down there. We also don't have the humidity that they get down there. And we have much colder winters. So often those very tropical things actually get frosted and damaged up on the high south. So I think the key is to choose plants that you know are going to grow well in the area that that you're living in. Choose plants that are comfortable in the climate and the environment that you're living in and nurture those up, which is what I've done. And, yes, I've got some palms and I've got some cycads and I've got some tree ferns, but I've tried to choose varieties or species that will be happier to grow up here in the household. I haven't gone for ones that are, are going to really, really struggle to grow in an environment that is not really meant for it. So that's the first thing that you need to you need to consider. The second thing is, and I'm going back to this when you were talking about no chemicals, the key to an organic garden is the soil. Um, the soil is the beginning of everything. The soil feeds the plant. And a happy root makes a happy plant. I keep saying this, I know, but um, if you've got good soil and you've got a good regular uh, fertilizing regime in place, you're going to create healthy plants. And plants are a lot like us. You know, if we're not eating properly or if we're not exercising properly, if we're overworked, if we're too stressed, that's typically when we get run down and that's when we'll pick up a bug and we'll get flu or we'll get a little bit sick. And plants are much the same. 
unhealthy plants or plants that are not watered sufficiently or not fed sufficiently, actually the leaves start turning yellow. Insects are attracted to yellow leaves because they know that yellow leaves are in a weakened state, and that's when insects start attacking. So I think if you keep your plants well-fed and well-watered, and I'm not saying over-watered, I'm saying well-watered, and keep them well-fed, you'll find that you have much more success. And that's the key to an organic garden. The key to an organic garden is to build the soil and make sure that you've got very healthy, strong plants. Um, and also, in an organic garden, you allow a variety of, of pests to actually live together. That's part of, that's part of the, I suppose, the secret of it. You don't spray the aphids because you know that the ladybird and the praying mantis will come and eat the aphids. And so it's about allowing, allowing nature to do some, some of your work and allowing, um, chain networks, I suppose, or, or food chains to start developing in your garden. And, and that's a slow process. What we need to understand about organic gardens is they aren't always perfect, but they are very much alive because they're full of all of nature's givers and takers. Fantastic. Okay, Debbie, we're going to ask you just now about how to get rid of those pesky pests and diseases, okay? Even if you're in an organic garden, you don't have to go completely mad. But first of all, we're going to give your voice a little bit of a break, and we'll be back right after this. This is Blooming Lovely with Melanie Walker. And yes, that's my name. I don't know why Rihanna doesn't remember what her name is, or she's just asking somebody else what her name was. Anyway, yes, I'm Melanie Walker, and I'm on the line with Debbie Smith from Foxgloves Landscape Design. And we are talking about how to grow a garden the natural way. Now, Debbie, one of the things that people tend to do is if they see anything in their gardens that's like not where it's supposed to be, it's attacking their plants, first of all, they panic. And secondly, they'll go for the big guns and go and get all kinds of poisons. Now, what is the best thing to do when you have an infestation of something? Where, where, where is your first stop? Well, I think that um, as an organic gardener, I personally choose not to use any chemicals. But the, the new way of thinking is a, a program called Integrated Pest Management. And really, Integrated Pest Management relies on us using a number of different things. And first of all, when you're dealing with an insect, um, first monitor what level of damage the insect is doing. A lot of insects don't do as much damage as we as we fully expect them to do. And I think sometimes we panic and go and buy the big gun in the form of a big chem- chemical um, without thinking of the potential consequences. So I want to paint you a rather gloomy picture. Um, we, we said earlier that it's rose season and Anybody who's grown a rose will know that you go out at this time of year. Roses are in full bud and they're all blooming. They're absolutely beautiful. And you walk out into your rose garden and there you see a whole lot of aphids clustered all around one of the new, the new rose buds. And oh my word, the, the aphids are attacking my roses. I need to spray and off you go to your local garden center. You buy a big gun in the form of some kind of chemical and you spray the aphids and there's no doubt that when you spray the aphids, they're dead. They're lying on the floor with their feet up in the air. But what you didn't realize while you were spraying those aphids is that you also sprayed a ladybird and a praying mantis who were busy hunting the aphids and eating the aphids. And so you've not only killed the ladybird, you've also killed the predators. 
And the story doesn't stop there because now along comes a shrike or a robin or a thrush and eats one of those poisoned insects. And so we've got secondary poisoning that happens. And before too long, you've got this very, very barren environment in which you're gardening. There's no bird song, there's no insects, there's no life. Um, but the story doesn't stop there because when the irrigation comes on or it rains after you've used a chemical, some of that chemical will wash off. Um, some will go into the soil and kill earthworms and wood lice and creatures that are soil builders in our gardens who we actually need in the gardens. And some of it will run off into the, the runoff system, the, the, the water runoff system, and ultimately that flows into the rivers. It will end up in the Yakske River, which flows right away through Joburg, past Alexandra, where maybe three kids are splashing around on the edge of the water. And maybe when those kids are 30 or 40 years old, they're going to have um, cancer or some terrible disease, and nobody knows why. I think that when we use too many chemicals, we pollute our environment on a far bigger scale than what we realize and we understand. That's something that I, I think that is needs to become part of our social consciousness and our social responsibility. So to get back to what you were saying about an organic garden, if we look at integrated pest management, sometimes we use cultural methods, and cultural methods would include things like just picking up the snails or getting um, a jet of water and washing the aphids off onto the floor where they can't do damage onto, on the rows, but they can still become food for the birds that want to eat them without doing any kind of damage. Of course, if you feel that that's not working for you, there are um, organic herbicides and fungicides. And in fact, there's even a new organic pest, um, uh, uh, sorry, organic pe- pesticides and fungicides, but there's even a new organic um, herbicide that's come out on the market that you can use. And basically, if you use the organic ones, they, they concentrate more on repelling rather than on killing the insects. So you don't entirely get rid of them, but you kind of control them. And just recently, in the last couple of weeks, I've discovered a wonderful new, new biological product. It goes by the name of Insect Science. And Insect Science is, is a biological product that we can put in our soil that will attack certain pests and diseases in our gardens, but won't actually um, kill en masse, which is a really, really wonderful way to be able to treat a garden. So there are options out there, and I always think that the very, very last option should be um, a chemical option. And there are instances, for example, I know one of your pet peeves is um, the... Lilibora. Lilibora. And that one, sometimes people will resort to using a spray. But if you are going to use a chemical spray in that instance, what I would say to you is mix up the least amount that you can mix up, not the most amount that you can mix up, and concentrate your spraying on that very localized area. Mm. Don't spray in a wide range. Do it on a day when it's not windy, when you're not expecting to get any kind of drift. Do it on a day when it's not rainy, when you might get any any of the poison flowing further out into the garden. And that would be the best advice I can give you on that. But honestly, I think if you allow your garden to be natural and you allow natural cycles to happen, you'll find that the garden takes care of itself. But it's quite strange that from, from year to year, I mean, I notice what's happening in the garden, like mainly because of roses. So some years you may have lots and lots and lots of aphids. Then the next year you may have black spot. 
Then the one year you may have lily borers and the next, next year you have absolutely none. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things that you have to be completely on the lookout all the time in your garden, be getting up close and personal with your plants to make sure that you can see what's happening and then not leave it until it's too late. I mean, I, I would say that you're the first call. Not you specifically, you, Debbie, because we can't all have you in our gardens. But you, as a person who has a garden, are the first point of call when it comes to actually controlling pests. You know, I think so. And I think um, when 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 you have a garden, any kind of garden, whether it's a single pot on your balcony or whether it's just a small vegetable garden or even a, a bigger garden, you need to, I think too many of us tend to want to view our gardens from a distance. And like you said, we need to be in our gardens. I make it my business every day before I go out to work or do anything. I have a walk through my garden and a general look about and see. And sometimes when you see something and you pick it off immediately and then you sort it out. And the last thing I do when I come home is also just have a walk through the garden, say hello again, see how it's looking. And that way I know that I've been in touch with it and I'm observing it. Sometimes when we react quickly, we can, we can kind of prevent I think it's when you think, oh, I'll wait and see what happens. Um, and you leave it for two or three weeks. And by the time you go back to it, it's already out of control. And this is especially true when we're dealing with fungi. Fungi spread very, very quickly. You need to be far more proactive when you're dealing with fungi than you are when you're dealing with pests. So if you notice that there's some kind of fungus, deal with it. Get an organic spray or pick off the infected leaves immediately. Never, ever put infected leaves into your compost heap. Rather, actually throw those away in the bin so that you are removing the, the fungal spores from the environment completely. I think if you stay on top of your garden that way, um, it becomes a lot easier to manage. Girl, yeah, we don't want to be feeding all the bugs too much, but what we do need to do, as you mentioned a little earlier, was that you need to feed your plants to make them strong enough to withstand the ravages, not only of time, but of course of pests and diseases too. But there's so many different fertilizers and different feeding mediums available these days, it's quite difficult sometimes to know which ones to use and whether you should be using a drench, whether you should be using granules or you should be using foliar feeds. What do you use specifically? Am I allowed to mention products by name? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get them one day to come and say, right, we're going to put money into this. We've got everybody wanting this product now. <laughs> so my personal preferences, sorry, I, I asked that question because I wasn't sure. I wasn't 100% certain. As, as, as we've been discussing, I'm an organic gardener. My two um, favorite organic products to use would be products from the Talborn range or from the Atlantic range of fertilizers. But I also really, really love nitrosol. And nitrosol is one of those fertilizers that you can use as um, a drench or as a foliar spray. It's a liquid fertilizer, whereas the Talborn and the Atlantic fertilizers are, depending on what kind of fertilizer you buy, normally in the form of some kind of pellet or some kind of powder, and whether you're using a bone meal or whether you're using an organic 232. And they typically are are chicken manure or animal manure based. They don't smell delightful, but they but they they work quite well. Of course, you get the chemical fertilizers too, uh, which are the granular fertilizers that you mentioned. And you know, there are. I'm not saying never use a chemical fertilizer. I'm saying that maybe you could use a limited amount. And given the choice of a chemical fertilizer 
and a chemical spray for insects. I'm far less opposed to a chemical fertilizer. And in fact, in my own business, in some instances, where customers have dogs that are too eager to investigate the organic fertilizer, we will use chemical fertilizers because I would rather have some fertilizer than no fertilizer. What I try not to use at all are the chemical sprays, rather. Mm. But coming back to fertilizers, I think it's about understanding a little bit about fertilizers. Um, plants need nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium to grow. Those are what we would refer to as the macro elements. And nitrogen promotes leaf growth, phosphorus promotes root growth, and potassium promotes flowering and also um, fruit growth, as well as potential um, help with disease resistance. Also, if you don't have enough potassium, the plants find it difficult to take up the nitrogen and the phosphorus. So I always start my season with a balanced fertilizer, a 232, a 515, that's got a little bit of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in it. And then understanding what your garden needs. When plants are in flower, they're wanting a little bit more potassium. So you'll choose a fertilizer that's got a higher potassium level in it. When they're in leaf, they're wanting a little bit more nitrogen. And foliar feeding comes into, um, it's a wonderful way of keeping your plants um, kind of healthy and lush looking. Foliar feeding allows plants to take uh, the fertilizer directly into the leaves, um, which short circuits the absorption process and makes the food immediately available for the leaves to then turn into, into the nutrients that the plant actually needs. So um, I regularly will use for a nitrogen as a foliar feed in my vegetable garden. I'll also foliar feed plants like my orchids and my air plants uh, with the nitrosol to help give them a boost and a little bit of heat. But the beauty about nitrosol is if you've got a plant that's been disease-ridden or insect-ridden or maybe it's just not looking as healthy as you'd like it to look, you can make it up into a drench as well and then basically pull that into the root zone and let it become available. What I love about nitrosol is not only does it have the macro elements, it also has all the micro or trace elements, which are things like iron and zinc and magnesium, molybdenum, those kind of things, which plants need in smaller quantities but are equally important. Mm. Um, Now, Debbie, when it comes to adding stuff to your soil, there seems to be this growing trend. Um, I've noticed on social media and people saying to me, Oh, if you've got a problem, just give it Epsom salts. Now, I'm kind of like in two minds about Epsom salts. I, this is my thing I'm asking everybody every week. What do you think about Epsom salts? Well, the Epsom salts, um, we know it as Epsom salts, is actually magnesium sulfate. And, yes, it will it will put a certain amount of magnesium and sulfur into the, the soil. And I don't think that every plant needs Epsom salts. I will tell you that... Citrus, lemons, and calamondins, your citrus plants, adore Epsom salts, and it's really, really good to them. And roses can benefit from a dose of Epsom salts every now and then, too. Um, I, I think that there's validity in, in the use of Epsom salts, but I don't know that I would use Epsom salts as a general fertilizer in my garden. It's perfectly organic and safe to use in, in the sense that it's, it, it, it won't do any kind of harm. But if you were going to use it, I would focus it on the on the citrus in the garden and definitely also possibly on the roses. Although I use it more frequently 
on my lemon trees than I would on the on the rose. Okay, that's a definitive answer from one of our country's top experts. Now, I'm going to ask you about what what about pouring coffee into your <clears throat> indoor plants? I wouldn't pour it directly into the coffee. The coffee into the in, indoor plants. Coffee has a slightly acidifying effect on the soil. Um, it's a wonderful additive, especially if you are making coffee through like a coffee maker and you've got the coffee grounds left um, when you finish doing your coffee. Put the coffee grounds into your compost um, and they, they add wonder, wonderful texture. What you can also do is take those coffee grounds and use them around the base of your acid-loving plants, things like your azaleas, your hydrangeas, your camellias. You could put them around there. I, the reason I'm saying you don't necessarily put it directly into a pot plant is because if you do too much of it, if you do it too frequently, um, you might find that you'll turn the soil very, very acidic. And unfortunately, because pot plants are in a container, um, what's in the soil is what's available to them. And if there's too much anything in the soil, I think it might run the potential to burn. So mm. I would be more inclined to use those coffee grounds in my earthworm farm, in my compost heap, or out in my garden, and then use some of the earthworm castings back into the potting soil in the potting plant, uh, the pot plants. So I think that people shouldn't really just take everything they see on social media or on those apps that they've got for millennials who have got pot plants to heart. Because I look at some of these things and I'm sure, I think, I'm sure that's not right. Why would you be giving your, your plant your morning cup of coffee? And then literally that's what they're doing. And a few days later, they've got the next picture, they say, and this plant has just suddenly come alive. So I, I kind of want to debunk all of these myths about, you know, this really well-known app, which everybody's using. And of course, it's not working with their plants, which I find a little bit. You know, the other thing that worries me about the morning cup of coffee is I drink black coffee, but you might drink coffee with milk. Mm. And so if I'm the, the, the plant grower that's saying, put your morning, your leftover coffee, and then I'm drinking black coffee, that's fine. But definitely pot plants are not going to benefit from your milk and sugar. I, and in actual fact, I think that you might be polluting the soil and putting fatty deposits and things into the soil from the milk, which could potentially um, clog up the drainage and, and the, the porosity and the breathing ability of the soil, et cetera, et cetera. I think sometimes when we, when we read things on social media, we take them at face value and we don't necessarily investigate them further. I wouldn't even recommend that you take your, your milky mor- morning cup of coffee and pour it onto your compost heap for much the same thing. Milk is a form of protein and protein is not going to break down in, in the soil or in the compost heap. You would rather put that into a Bokashi and let the Bokashi actually break down the milk protein in that. Okay, well, talking about milk, though, that is one of the things that they do say if you've got um, a fungal disease growing on your leaves that you spray it with a mixture of skim milk and, and water because it will then make the leaves alkaline and, of course, the fungus needs a an acidic environment to thrive in. Is yeah. that true? Yes, that's entirely true. That's something that I practice in my own garden. But what I want to say to people is if you are going to practice that method, you need to catch the fungus in its very, very early stages. If you leave it for too long and then do the skim milk and water option, it's actually not going to do any good and you'll have to resort to some kind of either organic or chemical fungicide. Mm. So if you're vigilant and you see it just appearing on a few leaves, then by all means do it. But remember that it must be skim, skim milk. The less fat, the better, because you don't want to leave those fatty deposits on, on the leaves. 
and it needs to be in the early stages. Milk is slightly alkaline. Fungi thrive in a, in a slightly acid environment. So what we're basically doing is just trying to alkalinize, alkalinize the environment so that the fungi don't thrive and spread. But it really can only be done um, in the very early stages. If it gets out of hand, then it, it doesn't help. So that's one thing for there. So we're talking about funguses again, and then we'll get back onto one last insect question. Um, what can you do about black spot? I mean, because it comes and you think you've got it, you take off the leaves, but eventually you're going to end up with a plant that has no leaves, which is also not great because you also need it to make food, and it can't photosynthesize without leaves. So what is the answer to this particular quandary? So look, black spot, spot if you if you catch it early enough and you take the, the leaves off, um, then definitely that's one way of controlling it. If, however, you're not controlling it sufficiently and it ends up spreading to a lot of the leaves, you can buy organic fungicides as well as chemical fungicides. My first go would always obviously be to to the organic fungicide. The other thing that I think is important for us to remember, fungi spread by means of spore. So one of the ways to help have less fungi in your garden is to rather water early in the morning than later in the afternoon. Fungi like warm, moist, dark conditions to actually thrive and grow. So if we water in the late afternoon in summer, we're just creating that perfect environment because it's warm. We've now made it moist and it's about to get dark. So if you spray, I beg your pardon, if you water early in the morning, um, you give the garden and the plants a chance to to dry out, um, then you basically, although it might still be warm and dark at night, it's not moist and they won't grow as easily. The other thing that we need to remember is that very often fungi will overwinter, especially on plants like our roses. So when we do our winter pruning or our rose pruning in July, once you've finished your pruning, any leaves that may have remained on that, that plant after you've pruned it should actually be removed and thrown away so that they don't actually um, stay there with potential spores lying on them. And then also what I normally do is once I've finished pruning the roses, maybe give them a spray with um, an organic fungicide to kill off any spores that might still be on the stems of the rose. The other thing that we must remember is never, ever put any part of a fungal-infested plant, especially roses, into your compost heap because um, the spores might be there and we spread it through the garden when we start spreading the compost. So never put any part of your roads um, into the compost heap when you do your deadheading or when you do any pruning or if you've got old flowers from the vase, throw those away. Don't put them into the compost heap at all. Okay. No, they're verboten. You must throw them away. <laughs> okay. And then the one last thing I saw you in a talk that you were doing, that you had this these little squares of like pest paper. Like sticky paper, because I know we talk about using specific things, and I'm always worried about putting anything yellow or blue into my garden in case the bees go and walk all over it. But it is a great way of of getting rid of pests. How does it actually work? Um, I mean, why uh, is the one side blue and the one side yellow? Now, this is the new product that I was telling you about known as insect sites. And basically, insects are attracted to or either our day or active in the day or active at night. So what these little strips are, they've got a yellow side and they've got a blue side. Insects that work in the day are attracted to the color yellow. And the reason they're attracted to the color yellow is because 
we know that when our plants are diseased or sick or, or, or in a weakened state, often the leaf starts turning yellow, and that sends a signal to the plant that, uh, or to the insects that this is a weakened plant. So they have this, this yellow side to them that's got a sticky, sticky substance on it, and you basically put the sticky strip in the garden. You can either put it close to the soil to attract insects that might be pupating and coming out of the soil um, <coughs> and, and trap them on the sticky surface, and or otherwise you can hang them up in your trees with the same thing. Now, the blue side of that sticky thing attracts nocturnal insects because obviously they see color differently at night. They're attracted more to the blue spectrum than, than the, um, the yellow spectrum. And it will basically work the same way that insects that come out might be, might be tracked. Now, um, bees are, are self-cleaning insects. I don't know if you know that they're one of the few self-cleaning insects. So bees might be attracted to the yellow and get caught on it. But very often, um, in, in fact, most instances, they're able to actually clean themselves off of it, off of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. They kind of start cleaning themselves and get off. So unfortunately, I think you do every now and then trap a bee. Um, the vast majority of them seem to be able to escape. But I think it's a far kinder, more environmentally friendly way of trapping, of trapping insects because you don't just trap everything and you don't just spray everything. Um, it's a product well worth investigating. I think that you can Google them. They're online insect sites. I know for a fact that their products are being sold at Lifestyle Garden Center. I'm not too sure how many other garden centers are stocking them at the moment. They may well be in other garden centers, but um, I, I'm not 100% certain on that. Well, Debbie, that's a lot of food for thought there and food for insects as well and, of course, food for your plants. Um, and if anybody, of course, wants to create an absolutely gorgeous garden, I would really recommend you go and have a look at Debbie's website, Fox Gloves Landscape Design. Debbie, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and I'll catch up with you again really soon. Thanks so much, Mel. It was lovely to spend time with you. Fabulous. Oh, before we rush off, for those of you who may be lucky enough to be going down to the Western Cape um, at the beginning of November, on the Saturday and Sunday, the first weekend in the month, um, the, the Swellen Dam Garden Expo is happening, so do make a, a note of that. You get a ticket, you get a brochure, map showing all of the gardens because there's a whole bunch of them. They also have um, a garden market at the Drosti Museum Skier, and you can look there for presents for the festive season and of course with your ticket come vouchers for a free coffee and later on a free glass of wine or beer that sounds a great way for 120 bucks down in Swellendam so don't wait buy a ticket or get a two-day ticket for 200 bucks you just go and have a look at swellendamgardenexpo.co.za okay that's obviously in the western cape i will be back again next week with more wonderful things from the world of gardening and things that are lovely and green and we'll catch you then have a lovely sunday further bye-bye